I am not Josh Vincent, um, and I'm filling in for him uh, for obvious reasons this morning. And uh, I want to uh, begin and then later end the sermon uh, by encouraging us to remember the Christmas story, especially in a time like this. If you were singing just a moment ago, we were singing about tidings of comfort and joy. And I think those tidings of comfort and joy are as true now as they have ever been. They're as true on bad days as they are on good days. And I think actually against the backdrop of the reality of death, they're exactly what we need to hear right now. Such tidings of comfort and joy, namely the gospel. This is the right place to be. This is the right message to hear in a time like this. So with that, let's pray together. Our Father, we are grateful for the gospel this morning. We are grateful for the message of Christmas. We are grateful for the prophets who prophesied long ago about the coming of the Christ, and we're grateful that you fulfilled those prophecies by sending Jesus, your Son, in the fullness of time to redeem us from the curse of sin and death. And so we pray for our church this morning as we reflect on the gospel as seen in the Christmas message, that we would uh, have insight into the meaning of that message, and would you incline our hearts to believe it and to rest in it afresh this morning. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Hosea chapter 11 this morning. If you're in using your pew Bibles, it's on page 757, Hosea chapter 11. And as you turn there, I want to remind you, in this season of Advent, we are looking at various prophecies in the Old Testament regarding the coming of the Messiah that are picked up and stated as fulfilled in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2. So last week, if you were with us, we looked at Micah, chapter 5, and we learned that God is, uh, that he promised uh, that there would be a king that would come and shepherd God's people in a way better than their previous shepherd kings had done. And that was fulfilled, wasn't it, at the birth of Christ. Matthew 2, verse 6 said Micah 5 was fulfilled. This week, we're focusing on another prophecy, namely Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, which is quoted as being fulfilled in Matthew 2, 15. Next week, we're going to look at yet another prophecy from the great New Covenant chapter of Jeremiah 31, which is also quoted as fulfilled in Matthew chapter 2. Can you tell, by the way, that Matthew wants you to know that the promises of God have been fulfilled in the coming of Christ? Matthew 2 is is all about fulfillment. And uh, today, we're reflecting on one of those prophecies that Jesus fulfilled at his coming. The point of looking at these various prophecies, I think is helpful, it shows us a few things. Number one, the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem was not an accident or a random event of history, but was planned by God from ages 
long ago. And that's important to remember, isn't it? Jesus' birth wasn't God's second or third or fourth plan. It was his plan A from ages long ago. And the prophets knew that. They were longing for that day to come. Paul says it, that Jesus came in the fullness of time. God is Lord of history. And he providentially guided it such that Jesus came at just the right time. Also, looking at these prophecies does help us see more clearly who Jesus is and what he came to accomplish. If you did not know the Old Testament prophecies, you might still be able to discern who Jesus is in some way. You have kind of an interesting story there with the birth narratives. Jesus is born of a virgin. He's laid in a manger, which is a feeding trough for animals. Kind of weird, right? But, but there's some elements where you can still understand that this is a special child who's come to maybe do something special. But if you know the Old Testament, especially these prophecies, and then, of course, more broadly, even the story of the Old Testament, you're going to understand more clearly who this baby is and why this baby had to come. So I think when you celebrate Christmas this season, it is a good thing to reflect on the Old Testament and its hope for the coming of one, namely the Messiah, and why he had to come. And today we're going to see that Jesus is a king for his people. We're going to focus on how Jesus has come to live a faithful life, both in his life and in his death. And on the basis of that, he undoes sin and death. And we're going to see that in Hosea 11, which, as I said, is quoted in Matthew 2. In order to understand Hosea 11.1, I'm actually going to preach from the first 11 verses of Hosea 11. So um, I'm not going to spend a long time on the verses, but I do want to give you the context of that one verse so it will help help us understand why Matthew, I think, rightly says it's fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, we're in Hosea 11, beginning in verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them And fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One 
in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria, and I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. I think this passage in Hosea 11 is divided into three sections, and uh, I'm going to focus uh, one at a time, verses 1 to 4 and verses 5 to 7 and verses 8 to 11. And then, towards the end of the sermon, I want to move into Matthew chapter 2 and see how Matthew's understanding this passage. The big idea, if you are taking notes, is that the exodus from Egypt for Israel, God's faithless son, foreshadowed a new exodus for Jesus, God's faithful son. So as you can see from the big idea, there's a, there's a paralleling between the first exodus for Israel out of Egypt, the son of God, and then a new exodus for another son of God who is more faithful than the first. And it's that new exodus where I think, hopefully you'll stay with me, it's that new exodus that is for you and for me. It's that new exodus that brings us out of sin and death on the basis of the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Well, Hosea was about 700 plus years, he was a prophet before Jesus was born. So we are in a prophecy this morning, hundreds of years before Bethlehem occurred. And like many of Israel's prophets, Hosea called Israel out for their sin of idolatry. We're not going to take the time to walk through some of the main themes in Hosea for the sake of time. You can read Hosea. A lot of it is about the people of Israel had been in idolatry. They had worshipped false gods. And Hosea calls them out on that, even at the top levels, the top officials, the priests and the kings and so on. In Hosea 11, he tells a story, he reminds them of their story as a nation. And he starts in the first section by reminding them that God was their loving father at the time of the exodus. So this is verses 1 to 4. Notice the father-like language in verse 1. It says, when Israel was a child... I loved him, and out of Egypt, I called my son. Notice Israel is called my son, God's son, at the time of the Exodus, which is, if you go back to Exodus chapter 4, God tells Moses that when he's going to go to Pharaoh, he should say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. So that's Exodus 4, 22 and 23, which I think shows you Israel's status and Israel's position as loved by God. God was Israel's father at the time of the Exodus. And how did he treat them then? Notice verse 1 says, Out of Egypt I called or I summoned my son. So he delivered them, didn't he? He loved his son by delivering his son from their bondage in Egypt. And notice, despite Israel's unfaithfulness or faithlessness, which we see in verse 2, notice in verse 3, 
God is still treating them like a father. Verse 3 says, Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I have uh, four uh, fairly young children, and I've helped all of them to walk. And I think that's kind of the imagery of verse 3 when it says, It was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I held them up by their arms. So if you have young children, if you have had young children, you sometimes know when toddlers are first learning how to walk, babies first learning how to walk, they kind of toddle around a little bit. And if you don't literally hold them by their arms, they just fall over, don't they? They don't toddle for long. And I think Israel in this passage at the time of the Exodus is seen as a kind of infant. And God is helping them toddle along. He's carrying them out of Egypt on eagle's wings, it says in another place. So God is seen, I think, here as a, as a really good father to Israel. And he brings them to the foot of Mount Sinai and gives them his good, righteous, and holy commandments. He led them through the wilderness uh, with a cloud by day and a fire by night. And notice it says even in verse 3 that, that I healed them. If you remember in Exodus chapter 15, uh, Israel, right out of the Red Sea incident, starts to grumble because they come to this uh, uh, little creek, I guess it was, and the water was really bitter. And they start to grumble. We don't want to drink bitter water. And God has Moses throw a tree or some sort of log into the water, and it turns sweet from a miracle. And the point of that story, Exodus 15, 26, is that God says, if you obey me, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. And that's, and that's what it says here in Hosea 11.3. They forgot that the Lord was their healer. Isn't he just a good father to them? Again, I have young children. Young children have this inordinate desire for Band-Aids. Did you know that? I don't know what it is, actually. You go through boxes of Band-Aids like there's nothing else. And God, God is seen as a father here, right? He's, he's making sure that they're healed. He's going through whatever needs to be done in order to treat them well as his son. Into verse 4, he says, I led them with cords of kindness and, the, and with the bands of love. And I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. The words kindness there and the words Love speaks to the character of God as he treated them in humane ways. I think God in verse 4 is actually much different than the taskmasters of Egypt. Do you remember the taskmasters? They oppressed Israel. They oppressed the Hebrews. But God says, I didn't treat you like that. I treated you with cords of kindness, with cords of love. And I think at the end of verse 4, Israel is seen as sort of like a beast of burden or a pack animal when he says, I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. I bent down to them and fed them. To ease their, uh, th- the yoke on their jaws, I think is just language where God is treating this animal. He's sort of lifting up the yoke on the jaw so that he's treating them gently. He's treating them with great care. And of course, he's making sure that they're fed. Surely this is a reference to the manna in the wilderness. Remember, they go out into the wilderness and God fed them 
Even when they didn't know where their next meal was going to come from, God gave them quail and manna. God was a good father, I think is the main point. God was a good father in verses 1 through 4. He's a perfect, loving father to Israel at the time of the Exodus and their wilderness wanderings. This leads us to our second point in verses 5, 6, and 7, where Israel is seen as God's faithless son. We already saw this in verse 2. I kind of skipped over verse 2 if you saw that. Verse 2 is already really clear. The more they were called, it says, the more they went away. And the going away there is going away from God. So the more God summoned them to himself, the more they ran away. Which sometimes that can happen with children. They're just rebellious sometimes. The more you encourage them, the more you treat them well, the more they run from you. And that in, that in this case, in Israel's case, meant idolatry. Notice verse 2 says, They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. If you remember the very first thing that they do in Exodus 32, after the giving of the law, is they worship a golden calf. Do you remember that? Even at the foot of the mountain, they're already committing idolatry. And that ultimately plays itself out time and time again in their history as they kept sacrificing, it says. Not just one time. They kept sacrificing to the Baals, these false gods. Notice verses 5, 6, and 7 say clearly that Israel was rebellious. Verse 5 says, They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king. The last phrase says, Because they have refused to return to me. Which is a way of saying they refused to repent. They were stubborn-hearted. Verse 6 says, The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them. Here's another because. Because of their own counsels. So in other words, they did what they wanted to do. They did what was right in their own eyes. And it ended up leading them away from God into idolatry. Verse 7, very similarly, says, My people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. So the picture of Hosea 11, if you're following me so far, the picture is that God is a really good God, really loving Father to his people Israel, and they are faithless. Do you see that? He is really good, they're not. And that leads us to the third point which is in verses 8 through 11. He says, How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? Here, God is, as it were, asking himself a question. And I think in this passage, verses 8 and 9 especially, we see that God is Israel's compassionate father at the new exodus. So as he asks himself the question, How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? He asks the next question in verse 8. How can I make you like Adma? And how can I treat you like Zeboim? These, these towns are hardly ever mentioned in the Old Testament, as far as I can tell. But they were the sister cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And we know about those cities, don't we? Sodom and Gomorrah were annihilated 
They were judged for their sin. And so Adma and Zeboim are these sister cities that I take it were also destroyed in that valley. And God is asking himself, is it right? Can I go through with completely annihilating my people Israel? And the reason why this is a good question to ask is because in verses 5, 6, and 7, he's going to exile them. He's going to exile them not to Egypt again. It's not just a repeat of their past. It's a new kind of exile to a new place, namely Assyria. And the question he's asking is, is that it? Am I done with my child? Am I done with my son? I'm done. Is that, is that what's going to happen? So he's asking himself, and ultimately, as God asks that question, verse 8 says, God's heart recoiled within him. Notice it says at the end of verse 8, God's compassion grows warm and tender. Verse 9, I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. In other words, God says, no, I'm not going to be done with them. I'm not going to annihilate them like Sodom, like Gomorrah, like these other sister cities. I'm not going to come again in wrath. This is envisioning a time after the exile. In other words, exile would not be the last word to the people of God. But God would come again, but he wouldn't come in wrath, verse 9 says. Now, I want to stop here and ask a question. Why not? Why would God say, I'm not going to ever visit them again in wrath? I'm not going to have my burning anger executed anymore. Why would he say that? Because didn't Israel deserve judgment? Didn't Israel deserve what happened to Sodom and what happened to Gomorrah? I mean, really, hadn't they repeatedly rejected God? It wasn't just a one-time rejection, but it was a repeated rejection for centuries. Hosea is in the 8th century BC. I take the early date of the Exodus. We're, we're about six, 700 years after the Exodus now. And Hosea is looking at these centuries of rebellion, and it's been consistent. God has been rejected consistently by Israel. So what possible reason might there be for Israel not to be annihilated? And the answer is in verses 8 and 9. Notice verse 8 talks about God's compassion. And then verse 9 says, I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim for, here's the reason, I am God. Do you see that? And not a man the Holy One in your midst. That is why he will not execute his burning anger. That is why he is going to show his compassion because he's God. Do you see that? He's not a man. Well, what does a man do? A man goes back on his word. God never goes back on his word. God had made a promise to Abraham to Isaac, and to Jacob. Do you remember that? These these covenant promises God had sworn with an oath. God never goes back on his word. Numbers 23, 19, very similar passage. God says, I'm not a man that I should lie. God never lies. 
He never changes his mind so as to go back on his promises to his people. So ultimately, the reason why Israel is spared isn't because Israel is faithful after all, and there was something good there that God saw in them, but the reason they're spared is because God is God. Do you see that? We rest on the character, the compassion, and the covenant-keeping promises of God. I think, I love verse 10, I think God is seen here as so powerful and so authoritative and so compassionate in verse 10. It says, they shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. If you know the Chronicles of Narnia, by the way, I'm just thinking of Aslan here. He's going to roar like Aslan. And when he roars, Verse 10 says, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. It's a stark imagery. God's like a lion and the people of God are like birds. Do you see that? It's kind of stark imagery. And uh, the birds are kind of trembling here. But notice the birds aren't flying away from the lion. They're coming to the lion. Do you see that? So this is actually a good fear of the Lord. They recognize who he is. They recognize his character and they fly to him. They fly home to God. God is seen, I think, as a really powerful uh, figure here because when he roars, the return from exile happens. When God opens his mouth, so to speak, the people of God follow. They come home. I think verses 10 and 11 form a nice bracket with verses 1 to 4. So as if you've been following me so so far, verses 1 to 4 showed God is a really good father and verses 5 to 7 as Israel is a really faithless son. But here I think we see kind of coming full circle again. We see God again as a really good father, but his compassion here is shining through. And when he roars like a lion and the people come back. I think it's like another exodus. Do you see that? Notice in verse 10. It says, they shall go after the Lord. He'll roar like a lion. When he roars, his children, it says, shall come trembling from the west. You know that that word children in the Hebrew, it's just the same word as son, as we saw up in verse 1. His sons shall come home. So in other words, he's still a father in verse 10. And when he roars, his children or his sons come home. It's kind of like verse 1, his summoning voice all over again. And notice where they come from. Verse 11 says, they shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. If you saw in verse 5, it explicitly says, they shall not return to the land of Egypt. Do you see that? Now, it is true, I think, when the northern kingdom of Israel was taken into exile, there was a dispersion of sorts. Most of them went into Assyria. Some of them, I think, ran away into Egypt, and so were dispersed there. Technically, they still are in Egypt, as well as in Assyria. I think the point of verse 5 in saying they're not going to Egypt again is that this is, not a, this is not just the same story all over again. It's a different Exodus story. It's a new Exodus story. 
So they're going to come back from Egypt, as it says in verse 11. They're going to come back from Assyria. They're going to come, it says, from the west, from all these different regions. They are going to be coming back to God. I think then verses 10 and 11 say, when God roars, a new exodus happens. They're coming back like they did a long time ago. I think this is an important point not to miss because this shows that roughly 700 years after the Exodus, a prophet like Hosea saw God's future redemptive acts as patterned after God's past redemptive acts. Did you hear what I just said? I think God's past redemptive acts, namely the Exodus, served as a pattern for his future redemptive acts. The key moment of redemption in the Old Testament is the Exodus. The word redeem is all over the Exodus narrative. And so a prophet like Hosea, hundreds of years after the Exodus, looks back at the Exodus and says, God, you were a good father back then. I see that. I see how you treated your son. You're going to do that again, right? Because of who you are. Therefore, God's going to do a new exodus because of who he is. And I think this new exodus is going to be even greater, I think, in some significant ways. If I'm right that Hosea sees the exodus, new exodus theme in Hosea 11 itself, then this is where I think we can go to Matthew chapter 2 with our final point and see the conclusion of the matter. When the lion roared... This is what happened. So uh, I'm not going to read in Matthew chapter 2. You can turn there if you want. Uh, Matthew 2.15 is the specific verse that quotes Hosea 11. This chapter in Matthew 2 does focus on uh, Herod the Great. We all know this story, right? Herod the Great was a pretty bad man. And he did try to find out through the wise men, where was this new king of the Jews born so that I may go and worship him too. Which meant, I want to go kill him. I want to go kill this new threat to my throne. And so the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and warned Joseph, there's this, there's this bad king who's going to try to kill uh, the child, Jesus. And so the angel of the Lord tells Joseph in a dream to take Mary and to take uh, the child, Jesus, and to flee to Egypt. And to remain there until they were told to return. And this flight to Egypt, part of the story, was not lost on Matthew. Matthew actually makes much of this detail. It matters that Jesus had to flee. And it mattered where he had to flee to, namely Egypt, so that Hosea 11.1 might be fulfilled. What the Lord had spoken might be fulfilled out of Egypt. Out of Egypt, I have called my son. I just want to say a few words about this, uh, and then I'll bring it to a close. This point about fulfillment of Hosea 11.1 is puzzling, because as we've already seen, what's Hosea 11.1 about? It's not a direct prophecy, is it? It's a recounting of the history of God delivering Israel from Egypt at the time of the Exodus. It's a reminder of their story that had already happened. So it's a bit puzzling. Last week, if you were here, Micah 5, that's just a direct prophecy. But this is not a direct prophecy, so it's puzzling why Matthew makes so much of it as though it were. Additionally, of course, the Son of God in Hosea 11, we already saw this, is Israel. 
whereas Jesus is clearly the son in Matthew chapter 2. So why does Matthew think that Hosea 11.1 is, and the key word is, fulfilled? It's fulfilled, he says, when Jesus was taken to Egypt as a child. And here's my basic answer. I think Matthew wants you to see that the events of Jesus' life closely parallel the story of Israel at certain key points, particularly the Exodus. Did you hear what I just said? The events of Jesus' life closely parallel the story of Israel at certain key points. Matthew wants you to know that Jesus' life was a kind of reliving or redoing the story of Israel, which of course included the story of the Exodus. So Jesus' life events aren't random, in other words, but they're a kind of reliving the history of Israel. Jesus is God's son like Israel is God's son. Jesus goes to Egypt to be brought up out of Egypt like Israel went to Egypt to be brought up out of Egypt. Moving forward in Jesus' life, if you remember how many days was he out in the time of his wilderness temptation? He was there for 40 days. How many years was Israel in the wilderness? 40 years. There's a close paralleling. Do you see it? There's a close paralleling between the events of Jesus' life and the events of the story of Israel in the Old Testament. And the point here, I think, that Matthew's trying to get you to see is that this is intentional. Jesus is redoing it. He's reliving it. And I think it's not too far of a cry to say, that the story of Israel in one sense foreshadowed or anticipated the story of Jesus. The events of Israel foreshadowed or anticipated the events of Jesus, and in that sense, Jesus fulfills the story of Israel through his life events. And I think here is essentially where Matthew and Hosea agree because Hosea 11 itself anticipates that the lion's going to roar. Hosea anticipates a new exodus. Now, Hosea, in chapter 11, it's certainly the physical return from exile back into the promised land. But if you looked closely in Hosea 11, the people's hearts are changed. In reality, if you read the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, they come back from exile, their hearts aren't terribly different. There's some good spots there in the story, but they don't exactly have circumcised hearts, all of them. So I think Hosea 11 holds forward this vision that one day God would roar like a lion and bring his people back finally, climactically to himself and make them walk in his ways and in his statutes, which of course is the language of the new covenant. Israel was Mr. Faithless, but the new Israel, Jesus, is Mr. Faithful. If you remember in the story of the 40 days of his wilderness temptation, he never gave in. He was faithful to God through and through. The problem in the Old Testament isn't God. The problem is the faithless hearts of his people. And the the solution then, when Jesus comes, that brings about this new exodus, the solution is that Jesus is faithful in all the ways where Israel wasn't. Jesus is the faithful son of God.
Jesus is redoing it, you might say, the story of Israel, or, or we might say he's doing it the right way. This is how Israel should have responded. And Jesus does it the right way. He was faithful through and through. Now, why does this matter? Let me bring it home for us this morning. Why does it matter that Jesus was the faithful son in all the places where Israel wasn't? Why does that matter? Because this is how, I take it, the new exodus happens for you and for me. Apart from one who is faithful in our place, my friends, we are no better than Israel in the Old Testament. Apart from one who goes before us and does what we cannot do, then we are completely dead and hopeless in our sins. We are in the bondage of the Egypt of our sins, unless the lion roars, unless there is one who comes in our place, lives a perfect life of faithfulness to God as God's faithful son for us. We must have that in order to be delivered from our bondage to sin. In other words, Jesus' faithfulness is for us. By his faithfulness as God's son, are you listening? My brothers and my sisters, he won acceptance before God for all those who belong to him by faith. It is his life, his death, his resurrection that is the basis of the new exodus, which is the forgiveness of sins, redemption by his blood. When you repent of your sins and when you trust in Jesus, all he is, he is for you. His faithfulness, his righteousness is yours by faith alone. This is redemption from the Egypt of our sins. This is ultimately the new exodus of Hosea 11, 10 and 11. This is how we are freed ultimately, my friends, from death itself. His life, his death, his resurrection is the roar of the lion in Hosea. So as we close, I want to remind you this morning of the gospel. You know we're celebrating Christmas and tidings of comfort and joy. And what we celebrate here is really good news. The incarnation of the Son of God who came for us and for our salvation. And so for all of us here, I want you this morning to find your hope afresh in the gospel. In this one who was perfectly faithful to God in every way for us. I don't know all of you well. For some of you, maybe Christmas is a difficult season for any number of reasons. Perhaps it reminds you of loved ones who have died. Perhaps it will remind you of family members who are estranged. Perhaps it will remind you of a life that you wish that you had had, but you, for some reason, don't have. And for you, I want you to remember the gospel. I want you to remember the hope that we have in Christ and that God is not a man that he should lie. I want you to remember his compassion. I want you to remember the forgiveness of sins, the new exodus. I want you to remember the resurrection of the Messiah, 
which shows that there is a hope beyond the grave for us. There is the promised inheritance, like we've been talking about in 1 Peter, of a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. The hope is real of being with God forever. So remember that this Christmas season. For others, I want to chide you a little bit if you love Christmas for all the wrong reasons. It's possible to love Christmas because of the smells or the lights or the glitter, or the tasty food, or just the warm fuzzies that you get when you have a cup of hot chocolate by a fire. I don't know. Whatever you are like. Some of you like Christmas, but for all the wrong reasons. My friends, remember the gospel. The gospel is the good news of Christmas. The gospel is that there's real abundant life. It's a lot better than any glitter. It's a lot better than any tasty food. It's a lot better than any sort of good smells or whatever warm, fuzzy feelings you might have. The gospel actually brings you real life, abundant life that lasts forever. So find your new exodus this morning in knowing Christ, Christ Jesus as your Lord. For our church right now, Carrie Vincent has walked through the valley of the shadow of death. Psalm 23.4 was true for her. Whether the message of Christmas and whether the message of Hosea 11 and Matthew 2, whether that message is right means everything to her right now. And it means everything to you right now. This so clearly, I think when death hits, is so clearly where the gospel, which we proclaim every Sunday, in our songs, prayers, sermons, this is where... The gospel meets the rubber of our lives. These are the moments, I think, when the gospel does not become dimmer, the gospel becomes brighter. It shines so much more brightly against the backdrop of, frankly, what would otherwise be hopeless and a despairing situation. But we do not grieve as those who have no hope. We grieve as those who have the hope of the new exodus. We have Fresh hope, even this morning, as we think about what Jesus has done for Carrie, what Jesus has done for Josh, what Jesus has done for all his people, no matter what they go through, what Jesus has done in bringing about this new exodus from our sins and ultimately bringing us safely into his heavenly kingdom. I want to close in prayer this morning by praying for the Vincents again. I also want to pray for us as a church Because this Christmas season, I want you to be further attuned in your heart to the glory of the gospel of Christ. So let's let's pray.